You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. Welcome back into Play by Playcast. Thanks as always for the subscribe, the stream, the download. However, you have found this here podcast. It is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Gadet on social media at PXPCast or at Joel Godet. Email me, J G O D E T T at bsu.edu. Yeah, folks, it's time. Uh, for, first off, my sincerest apologies. We did not have an episode last week. Uh, I was out of the country in Costa Rica with Ball State men's basketball and then uh, and then got sick. So the last couple of days in Costa Rica was uh, a lot of video editing and my hotel room. Um, and then that kind of lingered over a little bit and getting back into the swing of things at work uh excuses we didn't have an episode last week uh but we are back at it this week jeff munn is our guest and uh jen hildreth the uh great soccer announcer uh great a lot of things announcer but most recently the world cup um jen hildreth will be our guest next week as well so a couple of good episodes uh on the docket here for you let's talk about jeff munn though he is the current reigning defending undisputed broadcaster of the year in the state of Arizona. Uh, he has done, and this interview will start with him listing what he currently does, but he has done everything under the sun in Arizona. He has filled in for Al McCoy on the Phoenix Suns. He has been pre and post with the Arizona Diamondbacks and filled in doing play-by-play there. He has done public address for both of the aforementioned organizations. Uh, public address for the Cheez-It Bowl and the Fiesta Bowl. Lots of public address. He's been a fill-in for Arizona State football, men's basketball. He is the voice of Arizona State women's basketball. When it comes to Phoenix, Tempe, Arizona, Jeff Munn is ubiquitous. He was the voice of the Arizona Hotshots in the Alliance of American Football. Jeff Munn is everywhere. Uh, and he's got a ton of great perspectives because of the experiences that he's had and the people with which he has had them and who he has interacted with over the course of his career. Uh, he is also, believe it or not, in more than three years of this podcast, I believe, the first person we have talked about uh, public address with a little bit and uh, how that's informed what he's done on the air. Uh, believe it or not, there is a pretty significant tie that we'll dive into uh, but a, uh, just just a really overall fun, good uh, conversation with Jeff Munn this week. Uh, we'll talk a lot about Al McCoy. We'll talk a lot about Tom Brenneman. We'll talk a lot about uh, the World Series in 2001 with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, preparation 
and uh, and run the gamut this week. Uh, Jeff Munn is our guest this week on Play by Play Cast. At the moment, I am what I guess would be called a freelance broadcaster. I do have a play by play assignment. Uh, I'm the radio voice of Arizona State University women's basketball. I do the pre and post game for ASU football. And I'm just basically the fill-in guy for their main play-by-play guy, Tim Healy, when uh, he's not available. Uh, That's going to come up September 6th. He's missing our football game with Sac State. And I also do uh, various – I'm the station voice of an all-sports station here in the market uh, known as the Fanatic. Um, I'm a stadium announcer for Phoenix Rising FC, which is a United Soccer League franchise. And I do a lot of fill-in work for Bonneville International, the company that owns KTAR, which is the uh, leading news talk station in the market. So I just I I have a plethora of things that keep me uh, busy. Not as busy as I'd like, and the bank keeps telling me I'm not as busy as I should be. But but I do. Uh, I, and I should also mention that I guess because if you want to know the whole thing, I'm the stadium announcer for both the Fiesta Bowl and the Cheez It Bowl. And no, I don't get free Cheez Its. You get free Fiesta Tostitos, though, right? You know what? What's funny when Tostitos was the the title sponsor uh, every year, about a month after the game, I would get a gift basket from Frito Lay. And I was kind of kidding, time, but that's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was married at the time, and my wife thought that was a pretty cool thing. She wasn't all that crazy about me, you know, always being gone on New Year's Day. But when that gift basket showed up, she thought that was pretty cool. And <laughs> um, the the cheese it sponsorship. Um, I'm not a big. <laughs> I, I'm not big on snack crackers. I used to be, and I needed to gain weight. And I'm also, uh, I have to watch what I eat now at, at this point in life. So when they said to me, well, you know, we're not really bringing Cheez-Its by the booth the first year that we did the game the, under the Cheez-Its sponsorship, I wasn't all that upset about it. I love Cheez-Its. Cheez-Its is a wonderful product. I just, I can't do that now. So, but my, my ex-wife did call me and say, are you getting free Cheez-Its? <laughs> You just have to fly Delta now because, as I've found out in the last couple of months, uh, you get Cheez-Its on board now. So, oh, do they? Uh, they I do. didn't know that. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you can't get the cookies if you get the Cheez-Its, but it's it's one of the options. So, Well, out here, this is a southwest American town. Delta flies in here, but it's not very often. Nah. Yeah, no, it's uh, – that's – I don't know if it's my airline of choice. It's just the airline of happenstance, I think, for uh, for the most part for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if it's a hub, you, you fly it a lot. Um, tell me about, we have this kind of, I don't want to say debate, but like running conversation on the podcast in terms of ways to approach this business. And some of it is talking to guys about, hey, I wanted to be in play-by-play, so I went and started in East Slingshot and from there went to, you know, South Slingshot and then wound up in Detroit. Um, And then there's uh, another sect of people that wind up in a market and get themselves a strong foothold and build themselves up. Uh, So I'm curious from your perspective, and I, I mean, I know you're an Arizona guy through and through, but how did you, and this is, I'm sure this plays out over several years and maybe decades, but, but how did you build the foothold you have in Phoenix uh, to really at some point or another have been tied to or affiliated with basically every pro franchise or amateur franchise you have there 
to kind of be like Mr. Tempe and Mr. Phoenix? Well, it's uh, it'll take a, a minute or two. Thank goodness this is a podcast <laughs> and not a radio show where you have to take commercial breaks. So, And I'll try to be as brief as I can. Um, when I got out of high school and I took some radio courses at Phoenix College, uh, once I got done with that, uh, and I did, everything that I've done, if you took a, a, a chalkboard and wrote down everything that I'd done in my career in terms of career path, you'd probably take a group of college students who want to go into play-by-play and tell them, don't do this. Don't do this the way he did this because this isn't going to work. Um, and I mentor students at the Cronkite School at ASU, and I tell them all the time, do what I say, don't do what I do. Um, but I got into radio, but it, even prior to that, I had gone into public address announcing work. I fell in love going to Suns games. I listened to Stan Richards, who was the PA announcer for the Suns. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. He had such a commanding presence, but he never shouted. It just was one of those things that grabbed you immediately. And I still think to this day he's the gold standard of PA announcers. Anyway, I started doing that, and that was really what I was best known for. Uh, started doing high school, then junior college. Uh, I became the stadium announcer for Arizona State Baseball in 1980 that eventually led to football and men's hoops. Uh, in 1991, uh, I took over the Suns assignment when Stan Richards passed away. And the year later, we move into the new arena. And at that point, everybody, I'm going to, this is getting worried. I was doing a lot of, I was a PA announcer by trade. In the midst of all that, there was always a part of me in the back of my mind that thought about play-by-play work. And I thought, you know, I'd love to try it, but I'm just too much of a scaredy cat. I'm afraid I would just be a complete disaster. And I just didn't want to, I thought, well, it's safe here doing PA. You just read off cards, everything's structured. You can't make a mistake. Well, it got to a point, two things toward the end of the, the, the 1990s. Uh, I was starting to get bored with the repetition of doing PA. And I also could see that the, the role of the PA announcer, especially at the professional level was changing. I was more of an informational type of PA announcer, and PA announcers were becoming more entertainers. I don't have a problem with that, but that's the way it was going. So there were two events in 1999. My, uh, my mother passed away, and at the, the reception after the funeral, my oldest brother, who had never really shown much of any interest in what I was doing professionally, until I started announcing for the Diamondbacks, a huge baseball fan. But he asked me, he said, well, what are you going to do now? And I thought, well, he must mean today. And I said, well, I'm probably going to stay for another hour and go home. He goes, no, I mean with your career. And I kind of hummed and hawed an answer. And he said, you know, I think you ought to try doing play-by-play. And I was just stunned that he was that, you know, insightful into what I was doing. And then after the D-back season of 99, it was our second year in existence. And we had gone to the postseason, lost in the division series to the Mets. I was in the president's office one day. I have a full-time job there in media relations. And he, he just asked me in the clear blue. He said, is there anything that you haven't done here that you'd like to try doing? And I said, yeah, play by play. And I forgot about it. I just kind of went, well, that, that'll go nowhere. Um, the following August, uh, the, the Diamondbacks and Suns were essentially owned by the same people. 
So it was, there was a lot of shared use. They, the, they have the WNBA team, the Mercury. Mercury needed a play-by-play guy for a road game at Sacramento. President of the D-backs called me and said, hey, go up and do this game and make certain you get a tape. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. He probably wants something to play at the holiday party so he can get everybody to laugh at me. Uh, so I went up and did the game, brought the tape back, forgot about it. Three months later, in November of, 20, of 2000, he calls me in the office and says, you're the fill-in guy for the D-backs now. And I said, Rich, I've never done baseball. He goes, doesn't matter. You'll be great. Get out of my office. Uh, and essentially, Tom Brenneman was our TV guy at the time for, for the D-backs, and he was also the number two guy on the Fox Game of the Week package. So he'd be gone on the weekends. Greg Schulte, our radio announcer, would move over to TV, and I would, you know, they needed a fill-in guy. So in 2001, I became the fill-in announcer. Uh, at the end of 2005, they decided to make me full-time uh, pre and post game with the D backs. And in 2004, ASU, I had left ASU obviously as a stadium voice because I just had too many other things going on. And they called me, offered me women's basketball. I turned it down the first time. And about six weeks later, I thought, you know, you idiot, you're an ASU alum. You have maroon and gold blood. Why did you turn that job down? And then two days later, they called me back and said, Hey, the guy that we had lined up, backed out, would you reconsider? And I said, no, I won't reconsider. I'll take the job. And that's kind of, that leads us kind of to where we are now. How did you learn to do play-by-play in that mix? Or, or I guess, what did you do initially when, when they said, yeah, do this, you'll be great. Uh, and then it clicked in, okay, now I have to actually be prepared to do, to, to, to do this. I guess I, I like a lot of other people that start out in the business. I was doing play-by-play in my head for a number of years while I would sit there at either Suns games or D-back games. And I had dabbled a little bit in play-by-play. They, the Suns also had an arena football franchise, the Arizona Rattlers. And I was, one of my duties with the club was uh, with the Suns was I was the media relations manager for the Rattlers. And there were a couple games that our play-by-play guy couldn't make. And I got pressed into doing it. And it came off okay. So I have I would sit at Suns. This was a proof to me that I was getting bored with the PA aspect, that I had the time to sit there and do play-by-play in my head. <laughs> and that's how I would do it. And I, I really made an effort when I listened to other broadcasters to try to study, not just romantically fall in love with the way they were doing things, but to really try to think about, okay, how did they do this? It, to think of the structure of how you do a broadcast. And as you know, you do play by play. It's, there is, it's kind of a mix of ad libbing and some amount of structure. And that's what I, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the craft. And I guess that's, that's how I, I I'm not going to sit here and say, I taught myself how to do it because I, you know, look, with those first few D back games, uh, works of art? No, no, they weren't. I weebled and wobbled through it, but thank goodness the D-backs were patient enough to let me just kind of figure out how to do things. And it was a long process. I mean, 2006, I was still kind of learning basic things about doing baseball play by play. And thank goodness, again, I was working with people who were willing to hang in there with me and 
you just, I just learned through trial and error. And again, that's, I would never recommend that to anybody because it's, you know, you can, you can lose a lot of sleep at night doing it that way. I, I think the college route, go to school, get your degree is a much better way to do it. Were there any uh, memorable highs and lows or, 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 or trial successes and, and trial failures in, in the, in the trial and error period there? Well, one of the first spring training games I did for the D-backs in 2001 is infamous to this day. It was the day Randy Johnson hit a bird with a pitch. Yes. And I did that game on radio, and I, the tape exists somewhere at, uh, at KTAR because they're, they carry the D-backs games since their ex- uh, inception. And... Uh, I just called it straight and it hit a bird, you know, something to that nature. I knew what to say. It was just like, and, and if I had been doing baseball for five or six years, I might've actually been tongue tied. But the fact that I just was a neophyte, I just called it the way I saw it. And that was one, um, trial successes. I, um, it really had nothing to do with me in terms of my own abilities, but that of course was the year the D backs won the world series. And I got to do the game in Milwaukee where we clinched the national league West. And that was, you know, and I was, I really wasn't thinking about it that night. I was just thinking, do the game, but I listened back to it and I was really happy with the way that I just stayed in the moment and didn't get all emotional about the D-backs. They actually had clinched a tie that night for the National League West, and then the Dodgers, um, I'm sorry, the Giants lost to the Dodgers much later that night, and that's what clinched it. But there were little successes. Um, To answer your question directly, I had to sit here and think about this, because this was a long time ago. I... The, 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 the moment that I thought I might be able to do this was a night that I went into the TV booth. I wasn't doing play-by-play. I was doing PA that night. And I walked into the TV booth, and Tom Brenneman was one of my earliest and almost ardent supporters. And he's a dear friend, and I'll always be very, very grateful to him. And the Angels were going to have an opening, and I was thinking about applying for it. And I, I walked into the booth that night and I just asked Tommy, I said, is there anything I need to work on? You've heard me do games. He would hear me do games when he'd come back from his Fox assignment. And he looked at me and in that unmistakable voice of his, he said, pal, if I were you, the only thing I better work on is getting my resume brushed up because you're ready for a full-time gig right now, pal. <laughs> and, you know, you hear something like that and your chest just goes boom, you know, and it, it really just, that was the moment I thought, I never said to myself, hey, you know, I know what I'm doing. I got this lick. This stuff's easy. No, it's not easy. But I had, that was the moment I thought to myself, okay, I might be able to make a go of this. What else did you learn from a guy like Tom Brenneman or being around Greg Schulte or, or certainly from a son standpoint, uh, I mean, things you, you might have plucked from Al McCoy. Um, are there things that, that you've got in the, in the Rolodex that come to mind on a, on a regular basis? Oh yeah, uh, from both Tommy and Al, and 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 Greg too. I, I don't want to leave him out of this. But Al is my—if I had to pick one person and say this is my mentor, it—that's easy. It's Al McCoy. And the things that I've learned from Al and Tom and Greg have more to do with off the air than on the air. I've I've learned 
a great deal about uh, conduct, how to, how to be a gentleman, how to be respectful of other broadcasters. If you had the chance to spend time around Al McCoy, and uh, I know you've had Kevin Harlan on, on your podcast. Uh, you have have had Kevin Harlan on, right? Correct, yes. Yeah, I thought so. Um, I subscribe to this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, so <laughs> I lose track of everybody Joel has on. Friend of the pod. Um, Kevin would be the first to tell you that Al's, he treats every broadcaster with another team as an equal. It doesn't matter if they're just starting out in the business. It doesn't matter if they've been at, at it for 40 years. He's a gentleman. If you come to Phoenix for a game, he goes over, shakes your hand. You got everything you need. Is there anything I can do to help? Those are the things I learned from Al. Be respectful of other broadcasters. Conduct yourself as a professional at all times, on and off the air. Tommy's the same way. Tommy would have every reason in the world to be an egomaniac, and he's just the opposite. You'll never meet a better person in your life, better people in your life, than Tom Brenneman and Al McCoy. And they will always make you feel like you are the most important person in the room. And I think that's a wonderful character trait. And uh, I think that's, it's, it's the one biggest lesson I've learned from Al is preparation always, you know, and, and I know everybody that comes on this podcast always talks about, you know, the, the prep is the most important thing and it's true. And the other thing is, is just be respectful. This is a great industry and there's a lot of great people in it. And you need to remember at all times that you're just, you're, you're part of the fabric. You're not the entire cloth. Is that a good analogy? I guess. No, that's perfect. Um, and no, go ahead. I, mean, I could go, I could go for days about Al. So we better go on to the next question. Well, let, let me, let me stay on that Avenue though. Um, when you talk about, you learned a lot about preparation from a, a guy like Al McCoy. Uh, how does he prepare that you took away and, and that helps you get ready on a daily he, basis. He reads and he's like a lot of other broadcasters that prior to the internet, he would subscribe to magazines and newspapers. And if you go to his office at the arena, it's, there's just, there's reading material everywhere. And he's on the internet constantly to keep up with the latest going on with everybody going on, uh, playing in the NBA. Um, I developed a routine when I was in baseball and it's just, and I do this with any other sport that every day I go online and read whatever I can get my hands on about what went on the night before in the league or conference that I'm operating in. And when I was in baseball, it was an all day process. I would get up first thing in the morning, whether I was at home or on the road, and I would get on my computer and try to read the game story and notes column from every game played the night before in the major leagues. And Al was, Al taught me a great deal about just reading and listening. The other thing that, that Al taught me was it's important. It's not so important that you prove to, to your peers how much, you know, it's important to listen to them when they tell you things about the team that they're with. You pick up information. Um, when I was in baseball, you know, we'd have the other team's broadcasters drop by our booth before games. And, a, and in baseball in particular, a lot of ex-players are broadcasters. Rick Monday, Dwayne Kuyper, Mike Kruko, etc. 
when they'd come in the booth and they'd start talking about players from an analytical standpoint, I never spoke. I listened because that's how you learn. And, uh, you have to have the humility, humility to tell yourself, I do not know everything about this game. I don't know 20% about what I should know about this game. And Al was a great example to me of reading, listening, learning. And if you do that, then the two hours you're on the air, or three hours you're on the air is, is I'm not going to say it's easy, but it becomes easier if you just, you know, do as much work as you can, you know, Ray Scott's line. By the time you get to the booth, 80% of your job should be done. And Al was a great example of that, still is. Uh, I mean, let me just say this very quickly, and it's partly, yeah, I'm, you know, Al's a friend and he's a mentor, but I'll say this and I'll debate anybody who disagrees. I think right now, Right now, today, at age 85, Al McCoy is the best play-by-play guy in the NBA. That's not a legacy comment. I think he's the best going right now. And maybe some of that is personal. Maybe some of that is my loyalty, Al. But when I listen to him, and I listen with a broadcaster's ear, he's still as sharp as a tack. He calls the game beautifully, weaves in notes, weaves in you know little colorful phrases to keep you entertained. And so I think, okay, if I was going to, you know, emulate somebody, that's not a bad guy to emulate. What is the separator? You know, you talk about being able to weave in information, and I think that there's such an art to it that uh, we all continuously try to figure out. Um, But to you, what makes the difference between, you know, Al and any other guy in the NBA who's obviously very good? There's, you know, 30-some-odd jobs. What's that differentiator? I think it's you have to remember at all times that you're you, you are part entertainer in the sense that you have to keep your audience engaged. I hear a lot of play-by-play guys that really do a lot with stats, and they almost overdo it. Um, and I I hear guys a lot that are way too dependent on statistics. Stats are important. They you know they help tell a story. But I, but I think it's important to understand you've got to hit a balance between uh, color, uh, stats. And when I say color, I don't mean analysis because Al has a color analyst, Tim Kempton. But it, I'll give you a good example. Al has a lot of little catchphrases. When somebody hits a three-point shot, he says, Shazam. Or if it's a shot that goes right through the hoop without hitting the rim, it's a swisheroo for two. Okay, why is he doing that? Because it keeps the entertainment value going in the broadcast. You stay engaged. You stay, you know, you, it holds your attention. If you just do a dry, there's the shot up and it's good, well, that's okay. You're reporting the story, but are you really holding the audience's attention? Uh, when I listen to guys that, there's some guys in this business, I don't know name names, obviously. I almost feel like, they've written down all these notes and stats and they're not going to sign off until they get all of them out on the air. And I always knew going in, I talked about my routine of reading everything I could every day. I do it. I did it knowing 98% of it was never going to get on the air, but I wanted to know just in case. So I think it's important that you don't overstat people. I think Al's very good at that. He tells you the stats you need to know and the stats that help tell the story. Um, if a, if a guy is shooting a lot of threes, 
you, you give his three point percentage. And if it helps explain the story as to why he's so, you know, insistent on shooting from outside. But if it's a, if it's a stat that doesn't tie into what's going on in the game, then you're not going to hear it from Al. He knows, and he's been doing it a long time. So obviously he puts his experience to work, but I think it's important that you, that stats have meaning. If, you know, I don't want to know what a guy's hitting on days that end with Y or something like that. I mean, it's just, you know, I think you tie up, you're, you're wasting time talking about so-and-so hits such an average on Mondays. Well, that doesn't tell me anything. You know, what is it about Mondays? He gets to bed early on Sunday night. Is that why he hits well? I mean, you know. Well, and then you've got. I'm a babbling now. No, but no, no, no. But then you've got. It's you know, if you have a stat, find a way to make it relevant because maybe he does go to right. Bed early that's a, on and, and that's when to answer your question. I think that's what Al's really good at. He makes it relevant, and he knows the balance to hit between making it interesting, engaging his audience, and giving them information. And you're right. It is a. It's a. It's an art, not a craft. If it was a craft, uh, it's not a science. The difference between art and science. Math is a science. Two plus two has to equal four. There's just no other way to do it. Art is where you take 10 people in a room, show them a movie. They, they might all have 10 different opinions as to what was good about the movie, but they're all right. So what Al is doing, what we as play-by-play announcers are doing, is an art. It's not a science. How much has or, or still does... Uh public address work inform what you do as a play-by-play guy? You know, it's funny you would ask that. Um, I did, one of the things that I didn't mention at the beginning was uh, I did the play-by-play this past spring for the Arizona Hotshots mm-hmm. of the Alliance of American Football. I had not done a lot of football in my life, and I worked with a really excellent analyst, Dale Hellestray, who does a lot of college games for Compass Media Networks. And he pointed out to me about three or four games into the eight games of the season. He said, I know you used to do a lot of PA work. He said, you're letting it bleed into your play-by-play. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're so worried about getting the yardage on a play exactly right that you'll hold on to the call, and I don't have enough time to, to do what I need to do. And he was right. And he said, just you know, say it's down at about the 38." And you can correct it or fix it, you know, later on. So in a way, PA, and I, and I had to, it was, it's, again, it's not something I would recommend to a lot of people because in PA work, as I said, everything is structured. Most of what you're reading during timeouts is on cards. You just react to what you see on the floor. It's very structured. Um, when I started doing play-by-play, the first thing I had to settle in my head was, you are going to make mistakes. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. And you can't go to pieces when you make a mistake. When I'm a, as a PA announcer, if I made a mistake, yeah, I could go home and lay awake at night. But you can't do that as a play-by-play guy because you're, you're just going to make so many mistakes. It doesn't mean you're a bad play-by-play announcer. It just means you're doing a three-hour ad lib. You're inevitably going to hit a few sand traps. And once I got uh, once I got my arms around that, I was okay, but it's actually being a PA announcer, I think in a lot of ways hindered my development as a play-by-play guy because it took me a while to accept the fact that you know, I was going to mess some things up. 
And it's one of those things where I feel like you get the paralysis by analysis sometimes in play-by-play because if it's not perfect, then it's not perfect. And we forget the fact that nothing is ever perfect in no, public you're right. extemporaneous speaking. <laughs> you're right. And that's the other thing that, uh, like a lot of other people, uh, when I first started doing play-by-play, I would immediately run to the Internet to see what people thought. And I had to tell myself to stop doing it. Because the other thing is, is when I was the PA guy, everybody, you know, I, I had very few critics. Well, there's two reasons for that. Number one, I was working for very popular franchises. The Suns and D-backs, when I was doing PA, were just, you know, everybody associated with those organizations were rock stars. So I could have done games backwards and nobody would have had a problem with it. Uh, doing play-by-play, I had a truckload more critics. And I had to tell myself, stop reading the reviews. Because, number one, there are very few people in this in our business that don't have critics. Ben Scully, did, I don't, I've never seen anybody criticize Ben Scully. Well, there's only one Ben Scully. And so you just have to, you know, you have to, Stop paying attention to it and just do the job to the best of your ability. And if you do it well, people will hire you. And, you know, that's that's the end of it. Uh, that's, too, was something I had to adjust my thinking on. Because as a PA guy, uh, I still to this day, it, and it, it confuses me more than anything else. I was at a Mercury game. I did some TV work for the Mercury on a couple of games in July. And I went into the building one night and... A very nice guest services person came up to me and said, boy, we sure miss you on the Suns games. And I thought, gosh, you know, I stopped doing Suns PA 16 years ago. Uh, but in that role, you can you, you can get away with, number one, you're a little bit closer to doing it perfectly because there's so few ways to mess up. And secondly, when the team's successful, like I said, you could do it, you know, standing on your head and people would think it's the greatest thing they'd ever heard. Um, from a PA standpoint too, I ask a lot of people what it's like handling major moments. And I know you talked about clinching the West in 2001. Um, but what's it like being on a public address microphone when a team walks off a world series championship and what happens in that situation? Because I, I, I think we just kind of take it for granted, but what's going on in your mind and in that booth? Well, as we went to the bottom of the ninth of Game 7, I I also was an assistant in the media relations department. Uh, my boss is... Oh, so just a few was, things going on, yeah. Yeah, my boss is Mike Swanson, who's now the VP of Communications and uh, Public uh, Media Relations for the Royals. And he's another one that is one of my all-time guys. Uh, I think the world of Swanee, he's the best at what he does. We go to the bottom of the ninth, and he's got to get downstairs. You know, we're down two to one at that point. So we're preparing mostly for the Yankees to win it. And his last words to me were, as soon as the game's over, wrap it up and get down here, get downstairs. I need your help. Okay. Well, Luis Gonzalez gets a game winning hit. And the place is just in Bedlam. And at the time, Chase Field, or what was known then as Bank One Ballpark, didn't have the greatest PA system in the world. It wasn't. You couldn't hear it in a lot of the places, in the spots in the ballpark. So the place is just going nuts. And all of a sudden, the thought occurred. I remembered what Swanee said, get downstairs. And my thought was, everybody knows we won. I don't think I have to give the totals. 
So I just took my headphone off, headset off, and I went downstairs. I never made, after I introduced Luis Gonzalez, that was the last announcement I made that night. Everything else was just done on the field. So I never got a chance to say anything, but did I need to? No. I think most everybody in the ballpark figured out that the Diamondbacks had won the World Series. So what was I going to say that was that was going to, you know, you know, illuminate any anything that the public didn't know already. And a couple of days later, we had the parade. There was an uh, event inside the ballpark that I got to MC, And I did get to tell people at that time the D-backs won the World Series. So three days later, if anybody didn't know, they could have come to that event. And I would have told them, hey, the D-backs won the World Series. Now, in all seriousness, Joel, that once that moment hit, and I don't know what it, it's like for other announcers in other sports. Like, I don't know what it was like. Uh, when Golden State won the NBA Finals in their home building. But I would assume that it's just like, you know what? You can turn the mic off. I think everybody pretty much knows what's going on. And then everything else is done on the court or the field by the TV people. And it's probably one of those things that's well-informed for being a broadcaster, too, because we always get that urge of you have to say it, but we always talk about laying out, and it's probably uh, applicable across lines. Yeah, and I have a theory when I do basketball with ASU, and I've been very fortunate that I work with a program that we, you know, the 15 years I've done ASU women's basketball, we've been to the tournament, the NCAA tournament, 12 times, uh, five sweet 16s, two elite eights. I, I've been really lucky. I've been on a really incredible ride. But when we go into these games, like in the postseason, whether it's the conference tournament or the NCAAs where it's, you know, it's single elimination. Once the game starts, I do not, I make it a point not to say, well, this is it for ASU. If they don't win, the season's over because it's like, who doesn't know that? Who isn't aware of that? And besides when the game's going on, the most important thing to me that a play-by-play announcer can do is call the game, treat it like, it's November or December, and you're calling the game. That's what people want to hear. And, and again, and I'm not trying to throw a blanket over everybody that does play-by-play, but I think a lot of times in this business, a lot of us tend to approach our work as, okay, this is the way I want to hear it. And we don't think a great deal about what does the listener want to hear. Yeah. And I'm not claiming that I have the 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 solution to the riddle on it, but my approach is, look, you know what's at stake. We're just going to call the game. When the game's over, then we'll get into, okay, the season's over or ASU's out of the conference tournament. During the game itself, I just try to stay to the game. And, you know, my attitude, and I don't mean to be flip about this, if somebody listening to me doing a, I'm talking to an ASU audience when I'm doing ASU women's basketball. If they don't understand that this is the NCAA tournament and one loss and you're out, that's on them. That's not on me. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. I mean, I, and I don't mean to be, and again, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck about it. I just feel like the more, the less you can overhype it, the better. And that probably helps settle you down in the moment. I would imagine. That too. Yeah. That too. You're right. And I, and that's something I have to fight as an announcer is don't get too caught up in the moment because it ends up, it comes off bad. It just doesn't sound good. Um, I, I committed, it's funny. You know, I'll tell a quick story. Two years ago at the PAC 12 tournament in Seattle, 
Uh, we're playing Oregon State in the quarterfinals. We're a six seed. There are three. We hadn't beaten them in like four tries. And it's, you know, we're, we're a solid program. It's not like we're overmatched. And I admit, going to the arena that night in Seattle, I started thinking about what am I going to say if we win? And I did it. I did what all announcers say you shouldn't do. I thought about, I had it in my head. This is what I'm going to say. And we won the game and I said it. What I said was in the immortal words of Jack Buck, we'll see you tomorrow night. And I realized afterwards, I thought I probably shouldn't have done that, at least in the sense of thinking ahead of time what I was going to say. But I did, so guilty as charged. Yeah, I feel like I've, I've had moments where I've done that too, and I always feel like it never comes out exactly the way you wanted. And it's like, well, I wish I would have just been extemporaneous about it and seen more. Well, the thing that bothered me about it was I was using something from baseball and this is a basketball game. Yeah, and I'm true. not saying, I'm not saying that the, that my audience didn't realize what I meant, but because I had spent so many years in baseball, I lean on baseball things a lot and I shouldn't because it's a basketball game. You're dealing with a totally different audience. Um, let me ask you about football one more time as well. Sure. Because uh, you mentioned you did games for the Arizona Hotshots this year, uh, RIP. Um, what was <laughs> what was working in the Alliance like? It was a lot of fun. And when it ended, uh, the, and I got almost totally paid in full. The, the league still owes me about 250 bucks, and I'm pretty certain I'm not going to see it. <laughs> but... Dale and I had so much fun working with each other and he taught me so much that I was just bummed that it was over. I was also disappointed that we wouldn't get to see how far the team would go. But while we were playing, and I should mention, I missed the last two games to do ASU in the NCAA tournament. I had worked out a deal with the hotshots. I just said, look, I can't, I can't leave ASU in March. And they said, that's okay. You know, we'll get a fill in. So I missed the last two games. The last game I did was at Orlando when the Apollos were undefeated and we went in and beat the old ball coach. And up to that point, we had heard whispers that, oh, you know, there's some trouble with the finances, but we never saw any evidence of it. Uh, the week In week two, when there were rumors they were going to miss payroll, we relayed a road game at Memphis and on the plane there, and we chartered, our engineer turned to me and said, they're going to make us double up in hotel rooms. And I kind of looked at him and I said, they're not making me double up. I said, if I'm sharing a room with somebody, I'm going right down to the desk and showing my credit card and I'm getting my own room. Um, but that never happened. We all had our own rooms. We got invited to team meals. I mean, we ate like we were on a cruise ship. Every five seconds, they're stuffing us silly. And it's, it's so when it, when it ended, I was just, I was bummed. I was like, you know, I really wanted to see how this came out. You know, yeah. do we, did, were we good enough? Would they, somebody figured out before we started the season that we were the odds on favorite to win the championship. I don't know how they figured that out, but <laughs> I would have loved to have had another go at it with Orlando for the championship. And by the way, I saw on Twitter a couple weeks ago that they gave the players championship ring. They did in Orlando. I've got a little issue with that. <laughs> We did beat them, <laughs> but it was, I had so much fun 
and it was such a great learning experience. And it just that's what bothered me about it was I wanted I wanted to learn more. What'd you learn? And I just the the nuts and bolts of doing play by play on a weekly basis for a football team, going to practices, talking to players, talking to executives. You know, what questions do you ask? The things that you learn. And as I say, I learned so much from Dale because he's done lots of play-by-play work. I mean, as an analyst with really good announcers uh, in his Compass Media package that I went into it with the idea that, you know, when he says something about what you're doing, pay attention to what he's saying because he works with really experienced play-by-play guys. And I know that there are some analysts out there that will tell their play-by-play guy, hey, do this, this, and this, because they just want more airtime. But I knew right away Dale was not like that. He yeah, was interested cool. in, in having a good broadcast, and he wanted to help me. And I appreciate that. And I um, I think if he and I had had a couple more years together, we really would have had a, a great deal of fun. And I... And, I, you know, I, obviously I felt bad for the players, the people in the office. Uh, it was just... There were so many good things about that league. The quality of football was good. Uh, the people working in it were top-notch. It's just, it's a shame. And I do think that in some form, the template of what the Alliance was doing will come back. Uh, I don't think the XFL, I wish the XFL well, but I, if perchance it does not work, I do think at some point down the road, the NFL is going to try spring football again and use the Alliance template this time. And I do think that with the financial resources the NFL has, if they were to back it, it would work. Yeah, it was, uh, it was cool to see. It was, uh, it was neat to follow. I, I love those niche type things. So uh, I, was, I was all in. But, uh, yeah, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you, the other little thing, with the day that they, they folded on a Tuesday, the next morning – which and uh, our people in in Arizona were told you got to be out of the office and close up and leave the key under the door by oh, five on Wednesday. So our president held an impromptu staff meeting at ten o'clock that Wednesday morning, and I texted him. I said, "You mind if I drop by?" He goes, "No, we'd love to have you come by." Sat through the meeting. At the end of the meeting, I went out in the in the guts of the office, and there was a big box with hotshot swag in it. <laughs> And the light went off in my head, and I went and got a big old grocery bag, and I just filled it up. I asked, I said, is anybody, you know, is this here for anybody? And they said, no, have at it. And I filled this my, this bag up with T-shirts, hats, uh, miniature helmets. I came home. My son lives with me. He's 23. And when I got home, I gave him two shirts and two hats, and I said, here's the deal. I said, you can wear one of each, hold on to the other. And he said, Why? And I said, go online and Google USFL merchandise and you'll see why. <laughs> so you're telling me is uh, ArizonaHotshotsMerch.com is... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> well, we were told that our, our merchandise was the best seller of any of the eight teams in the league. And so it's like, I'm going to wait 10 years and go to a memorabilia store and just see what I can do with this stuff. That's not a bad play. Not a bad play at all. Yeah. Um, I'll end on this note for you. Um, given all of the ground we just covered and the things that you've done over the course of your career thus far, um, what did that Arizona sportscaster of the year mean to you? Well, it, it meant a great, it, it meant a great deal to me. It's the second one I've won. And I, 
I'll, and again, I'm going to try to capsulize. When I won it the first time, I didn't go. I was working for the D-backs, and as you know, the, the ceremony's done in June. In the summer, yeah. And, and I just, uh, this is something I haven't really talked about publicly, but you know what? People deserve value for listening to your podcast, so here we go. <laughs> I, Greg Schulte is, I've known Greg for 30, now four, almost 40 years. And I consider him a very good friend. He's never been nominated for this award. And I didn't feel comfortable going to him and asking him to cover for me for three days so I could go pick up an award that he's never been nominated for. And because that's just the way I think. I don't, I'm a team guy. And I just don't, I don't put myself or I try not to put myself above others. So, I didn't go. And that was the reason I didn't go because I just didn't feel comfortable asking Greg to cover for me so that the, you know, it's like asking the starting quarterback, Hey, can you, you know, go to the meetings for me? So the backup quarterback and go pick up an award. (laughs) And it just, I just didn't feel right to me. And I realized within about a month or so of the award ceremony that year that I'd made a horrific mistake. And I thought coupled with that, I thought, Oh, I don't know if I'll ever win this thing. So when I won it the second time, it was I've been I was very grateful the first time, obviously, but the second time it was even more uh, of a, a very humbling experience because it is voted on by your peers. And when people in the industry say to you what they think of your work, and and we're all you know we all feel the same way when our peers tell us that they they are they're impressed by your work. I mean that's there's nothing better than that. And I did go this time. Dave Gorin, uh, who heads the NSMA, when he called to tell me that I was getting the award, that's the first thing he said to me. He goes, you're coming this time, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I'm coming. My daughter went with me, and I told people, I said, I think my daughter came with me to make certain I was going to get on the plane. <laughs> and she, and that was the other thing that was great about it was my kids, I've never, ever made a big deal out of what I do professionally to my children. And, you know, they don't listen to my games and I don't force them to. And when my daughter said, I want to go, I want to see you get this award. That was just, you know, that's enough to choke you up because it's like, well, the kids were paying attention. And she's not a big sports fan. And I was scared to death that she was going to get bored to tears with the award ceremony. But you know what? She she was engaged the whole evening applauded uh, very loudly when her old man got up there to get his award and posed for a picture with Bob Lee. And, and that was the part that meant the most to me was that, you know, the whole night I thought, gee, you know, Haley really was paying attention to what I was doing. <laughs> Haley's my daughter's name. By the way. No, I, I mean, yeah, I didn't pick figure. somebody out of the crowd. And yeah. say, hey, there's Haley. <laughs> I just, I, I brought her with me. I found her outside. Yeah, um, well, you know, <laughs> Uh, Jeff, how do people uh, find more Jeff Munn in their lives? Uh, how do they find your work, or how do they find you on social media? Well, the, let's start with the work first. Uh, the ASU Radio Network is available on TuneIn. Uh, it's Sun Devil Sports Network. Uh, first football game's August 29th. I'll be doing play-by-play on September 6th, uh, filling in for Tim Healy. Uh, all the women's games are available there. Um my social media, uh, I have a Facebook account. Um, you might get confused. The pictures of two of my dogs are on there instead of my picture. So don't get thrown by that. 
My uh, Twitter handle is at Moneyball, M-U-N-N-Y-B-A-L-L. And I'm told that if I put that Twitter account, if I put that handle up for bid, I could make a lot Because <laughs> apparently it's a very sought-after Twitter handle. But at Moneyball. And I – listen, and let me say this too. I know a lot of young, aspiring play-by-play announcers, people in the business, listen to this podcast. I think it's very important that those of us old timers, and I can't believe I'm calling myself this, but we, it's our responsibility to hand down what we know to the next generation. So I say this, if you're a young broadcaster and if you think there's something I can answer for you at Moneyball, send a note to me. I'd love to help because I think that's the most important thing all of us in this business can do is lift others in our business up, help them out. Uh, there are a few handful of people in this business whose ego and paranoia won't allow them to do that. And I understand that, but I really think it's important for all of us to help each other out. That's Jeff Munn joining us here on play by Playcast. Get you some Alliance of American football gear. You can still buy it by the way. I actually think you can still buy it from the league website, or at least it's still like, like you can find like the Alliance shop. I don't know if you can actually give them your credit card and if they will you know, have something arrive at your door. Um, but give it a shot. <laughs> give it a shot. They, they are selling uh, USFL retro gear uh, quite rapidly in, in many corners of the internet. And I still have to read Jeff Perlman's book about the USFL too, by the way. Uh, I am a junkie for spring football and minor league baseball and all sorts of corners of the sports universe where you get some really interesting uh, experiences and stories. And I thought his experience, by the way, from a broadcast standpoint, working with an experienced commentator, color commentator, analyst, who could help you as a broadcaster, make you a better play-by-play guy, I thought that was interesting. Um, And how Jeff is still, at this point in his career, learning and evolving as he uh, moves on and moves uh, through the process of uh, all of the different places he has worked and all the different experiences that he has had. Um, my sincerest appreciation to Jeff for coming on and being a part of this podcast. Uh, next week's episode is going to be uh, interesting. Jen Hildreth is our guest. I'm broadcasting soccer next Friday. Um, I have not broadcast a soccer match since 2009. I don't know a lot about soccer. I don't watch it much. I played it growing up. Not well. I played it in a recreational format a couple of years ago, but I pretty much just run after the ball. Uh, or at least try to keep it out of my, my goal. Uh, so, what we're going to do with Jen Hildreth, uh, I'm literally going to sit down with Jen on the phone. And we're going to talk out broadcasting a sport you're kind of unfamiliar with. What it's like to dive into unfamiliar territory with someone who's very familiar about said territory. Uh, So I'm very excited about next week's podcast because uh, you're going to learn just how little I know about soccer and how I'm going to make this whole thing work. Uh, And I'm very appreciative to her for for lending some knowledge because I'm stoked to uh, get myself situated and pick somebody's brain who's uh, really good at what they do so that that hopefully we can have a broadcast on our end that uh, sounds good enough uh, next week as well. 
Uh, join us for that here on PXP Cast. Uh, until then, we're out of time. Seven day break. My name is Joel Gadet, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.